Hi, my name's Peter, and we, uh, this is the sermon, and it's great to be with you. I hope you've had a good week uh, in this coronavirus lockdown. Before we start, uh, why don't we just have a word of prayer? Father, we thank you that you have uh, brought us together today to look at your word, uh, to worship you, and to spend uh, time together even in this uh, dislocated way. We ask, Father, that you'll bless this time, uh, encourage us in our faith, help us to trust in you and learn more about you as we look at your word. Uh, we ask that you'll be, be with us by your spirit uh, during that time. And, Father, we, we remember also uh, those among us who have uh, various needs. Uh, we pray for George, who is recovering from the draining of his lungs, uh, for Kate, who is undergoing treatment, Helen, who has had an injury to her hand, Gloria, for continued healing of her back, for Nick Hawks and his ongoing battle with cancer, and for Morag, who's had a recurrence of her back injury and is struggling to stand. Uh, we ask that you'll help Morag as she uh, prepares for her wedding in three weeks. And Father, for other needs, which... Um, uh, not necessarily public, we ask, Father, that you will uh, uh, supply us and guide us uh, and help us to know your peace um, as we wait on you and seek your, your uh, direction. We pray all of these things, Father, in your Son's name. Amen. <clears throat> So today we're going to be talking uh, about Acts chapter 6, um, and uh, I'd like to point out that uh, the book of Acts is written by um, Luke, the same Luke who wrote the uh, Gospel, and Luke's style is, is not simply to write a, a verbatim type account where you know, he said this and that person did this. Luke's approach is to try to explain what's happening, to give an, uh, an understanding of what's going on. So in a, in a way, you could say Luke is a bit of a big picture person. He wants to see the big picture, and he's trying to help his readers to see the big picture of what's going on. So we'll keep that in mind as we have a look at chapter 6 and see what it is that uh, is going on there. Starting with verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. The Hellenistic Jews are the Greek-speaking Jews who are um, in Jerusalem, and they're complaining because the Hebrew Jews, the local Jews, are, are missing their widow, the the Greek widows out in the food distribution. Now, um, what's happening also is that in the previous couple of chapters of Acts, uh, as the 12 apostles, uh, the 12 disciples, explain the gospel, um, believers, believers are gathering and coming to faith. And uh, it says a couple of chapters earlier that there's a couple of hundred of them gathered in the uh, courts of the temple, and, and their numbers are being added to as more people 
uh, come to see the signs and wonders and hear the gospel and become believers. And then these people are not just coming from Jerusalem, they're also coming from uh, nearby towns. And as they travel from nearby towns, they're no longer uh, able to tend their farm or be a shopkeeper or whatever it was they did. So they, they've they um, brought some money with them, but they might be running out as they participate in this process. So there are needs, and there's local poor, and there's people who are dislocated and needing financial assistance. And uh, on a voluntary basis, those who have the means are being encouraged to share to help provide for the need. So that's why there's a food distribution going on. And and here in verse 1 of chapter 6, we find out that it's not actually being done in a fair or godly way. And that's, you know, here we go. Um, in the, the early church's first few days, there's already discrimination and uh, unfairness going on. And these are God's people. These are people under the new covenant. They're people like us. And uh, Luke obviously feels this is an important thing to point out uh, and to show what happens to deal with it. Um, and I think it's, it is actually highly important for us because we uh, very easily fall into the trap of discriminating against others and uh, it could be based on what country they're from or what part of the city they live in or you know, maybe it, it could even be people within your own congregation, maybe people you feel are too self-righteous or too disorganised or too, too ungodly. There's all kinds of reasons why we can claim in our own minds that other people are unworthy. And, and feel that it's appropriate to discriminate against them. Uh, the problem there is that if we discriminate against them, we are in effect saying, I am more worthy of the gospel. I am more worthy of being saved than that person is. And that's, that's sin because it's, it's clearly not true. Everyone has fallen short of the gospel. None of us are worthy. And our egos and vanity are always looking for that little ledge that we can put our feet on and start saying, aha, but we're more worthy than those people down the road, or whoever it is. Um, and so here, early on, in the first few days of the church community under the, under the New Covenant, this folly is going on. And so in verse 2, um, the 12, that's the 12 disciples, including Matthias, who has replaced Judas, uh, gather, and they gather all the people together and say, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit, and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the group, 
And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch. So these are the uh, seven, and, and we're told that Stephen is a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. The second name on the list, Philip, in chapter 8 of Acts. He performs signs and wonders, so clearly he is also being guided by the Spirit as well, and uh, in the context of what's going on there. So these are, these are people who are full of the Spirit and wisdom. Um, that sounds fair enough. You know, these are people who are being selected for food distribution, which apparently isn't an important enough job to distract the other people from preaching the word. So, uh, and interestingly, in verse uh, 6, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So in effect, they get a commissioning service to do food distribution. That's an interesting lot of detail for a, a seemingly menial task. And uh, I think we need to think about why Luke thinks that's important enough to explain. And I think it's, it's worth teasing that out, that um, uh, the results of that are, are visible in verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. It's, it's interesting to note that it doesn't say the word of God spread because the 12 disciples were able to concentrate on their role. It doesn't actually attribute it to just the 12 disciples. Um, and and I think that's partly because holistically, when the word is preached, people are looking at the character of the people as well and the conduct of the people. And if there is a serious disparity between their conduct and what they're saying, you tend to go, oh, that's humbug, that's hypocrisy. Um, yeah, I, uh, clearly hasn't changed them, so why we? Why should we believe in this God and this gospel? So it's quite important that that this uh, discrimination and this unfairness has been resolved and they've carefully selected men of God who are guided by the Spirit and show wisdom to do this apparently menial task of distributing the food fairly. Uh, and then after that has been sorted and the word is, is preached, there's, there's, a, um, uh, there's a growth in the numbers of, of believers. I'm not trying to say, though, that um, uh, new, bringing new believers in is some kind of works thing. We, we are saved by faith, not by works, so that no man can boast. But it is still important within the context of our witness that there is a consistency in the transformation of believers' lives that basically lines up with the gospel that they're preaching uh, and isn't in, inconsistent with that. 
So I think uh, it's, you know, Luke could have just missed this out and just said, oh, um, the 12 disciples preached the word and the number of believers grew. And, you know, within a certain uh, limits, that seems to be true. And he could have just missed out the rest. But he told us the rest of it because it's, it's significant enough to know about. Now, uh, in verse 8, uh, we find out more about the story of Stephen, which uh, most of you will know. Um, Stephen, a man full of great God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Well, that's interesting because this is a guy who just a few verses ago was selected to distribute food. Um, but we did note that he was a man guided by the Spirit, a man of wisdom. And here he is. Full of God's grace and power, performing great wonders and signs among the people. And in verse 9, opposition arises. Members of uh, the synagogue of freedmen um, begin to argue with Stephen. In verse 10, but they could not stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So God's doing quite a, a great work through this man who is part of a team of food dis- distributors and that's a significant thing I think Luke wants us to see that and to understand that it's not only the preachers that God is working through uh, as important as preaching is uh, and Stephen is demonstrating this and um, and in the following couple of verses from 11 to 15, uh, the people who are opposing Stephen start uh, making up lies and misquoting him and, and bringing false witnesses for the Sanhedrin to accuse Stephen of, of things to muddy the waters and to get rid of Stephen. And, uh, and that plays out in the next chapter. But the witness of Stephen is, is uh, very, very godly and and, and quite significant. It, it takes up the best part of two chapters of Acts. Uh, so Luke clearly feels that it's an important thing for his readers to know about and to understand. Um, and I think it's important for us to see today, just to help us to see, A, the need for consistency between what we say and the other aspects of our life, but also to note that you, you might have a relatively humble task. You might not think that your tasks are important, but there is a witness going on in that task. Uh, it's important that that task is done with integrity, uh, under the guidance of the Spirit, and that you love the people that you're dealing with as God loves you, and that that's clearly part of the package. Um, we're not just called to preach and do nothing else. And um, part of the relevance for that for us today is that um, I have, um, over the years, been involved in several Christian ministries um, on a volunteer basis, after hours, after work. And um, one of those ministries, um, the leaders of it were advocating that that uh, 
that we preach, but don't give pastoral care. The pastoral care will bog you down. You just, you just need to preach. And uh, I felt that that actually wasn't what we were called to do, and that wasn't what God's asking us to do, as demonstrated in passages like this. And and I actually wondered if they were using verse 3 in this chapter as part of their justification, where the disciples say, oh, we can't wait on tables, we've got to focus on the word. But I think that would be a misunderstanding of what the disciples are doing. They're saying, they're saying it is important that the food is distributed properly and fairly, and we need godly people to do that. So let's make sure that's done. And then we'll still focus, this little group will still focus on preaching and uh, and prayer. And so I, I don't think here uh, in verse 3 of chapter 6 that the disciples are saying, we only preach, we don't love. Um, and I don't think everyone in that ministry I was involved in preached didn't love, but um, some of them saw the pastoral care as an impediment and something that was just holding up the the preaching and the evangelism. And yet it was an integral part of the preaching and the evangelism uh, that, that you couldn't have one without the other without losing some of the integrity of what we were on about. So that's just something for us to keep in mind as as we go about our daily lives. And And I think the essence of that is what Luke is trying to tell us through this passage to show us the holistic um, nature of what God's people do has to reflect the character and nature of God where God doesn't just give us the gospel and say, ah, but you're in your own kid, and and, uh, there it is. He sends his spirit to be with us, uh, to guide us and to help us to to live day by day, um, to live as God's people. And he sends his word for us to to read and to learn from. Uh, so God doesn't leave us alone. He doesn't just say, here's the gospel and that's it. And Luke is presenting that more holistic package to us. Uh, so I think that's a useful message to understand. The second part of the sermon is uh, uh, Nehemiah um, chapter 9, verse 7 to 21. And uh, I want to give a little bit of context to that because uh, I've essentially cut in partway through um, a a listing of what God's done for his people, another salvation history, if you like. similar to the one we had a few weeks ago uh, on the New Testament. However, um, the context here is that Nehemiah is living under the Babylonian Empire and there's a number of countries all under the Babylonian Empire, including Israel and its neighbours. And as uh, as King Nebuchadnezzar came through and and conquered these lands, he broke down the walls of cities and ripped off the gates, uh, or had his men rip them off, because 
the city whose walls are broken and gates were ripped off is in a very tenuous position and can't stand up and rebel very easily against the new overlord because it's quite easy to send your troops in to massacre the city when their walls are already broken in multiple spots and there's no gates and so on. So that's the situation Jerusalem finds itself in. But at the same time, various other countries have rebuilt their walls and they've re re-hung gates on their their entrances because it's a matter of local security to get that up. And they're not very happy to see Nehemiah coming back to Jerusalem um, with with permission from the king of um, the Babylonian Empire to rebuild Jerusalem's walls, to put the gates back on. Uh, And um, so there's lots of opposition to that. Now, if you read the book of Nehemiah, it's a wonderful read. Uh, You can see how Nehemiah, in fear and trepidation, asked the king for permission. And um, that in itself can bring execution because you weren't allowed to ask the king for anything and it was an uh, capital offence to ask. Uh, you also weren't allowed to look sad in front of the king and to get the king to ask, he had to look sad. So the king, if he was, if um, things went well, the king would say, oh, what's wrong, Nehemiah? And then Nehemiah would ask for the favour. Um, both of those things could get you executed just for trying them. So it's a, that's a pretty risky thing for Nehemiah to do, but he felt convicted that that's what he had to do. So he does it, and God blesses that and has prepared the king to give permission. And Nehemiah goes back with permission, and through the, the book of Nehemiah, you see the walls rebuilt, I think, in 50, 52 days. So it's fairly well organised, and a lot of work is done, but the workers have to have their swords by them for part of the process because the neighbours are so incensed and angry that um, Jerusalem's walls are being rebuilt. And, um, so that's that's the context. And then beyond rebuilding the walls, when he's got the walls rebuilt and the gates put on, Nehemiah brings uh, the chief priests uh, and the other priests who's had to recall from the fields because no one's paying their tithes, so the priests have to go out and work in the fields as farmers rather than work as priests. Uh, And Nehemiah brings them back and gets people to pay their tithe and and, uh, then gets the chief priest to read God's word to the people and it's a long time since they've heard it and as they stand listening, there are tears coming down their face. And uh, so Nehemiah's bringing everything back together, not just the walls and the gates, but he's bringing God's people back to God and getting them to listen to the word, to sing, to pray. Uh, and it's a wonderful story and, and, and a true account. Uh, and so that passage that I've chosen as one of our readings is there. It's when Ezra is telling the people what God has done in the history of the people of Israel. And the reason why I've chosen that segment is that 
you get an insight into the nature of God. And um, it starts out to say, you are the Lord God who chose Abram. So God chose Abram. Abraham, whose name changes to Abraham, didn't self-select. And then it says, uh, you have kept your promise because you are righteous. Uh, In verse 8, uh, then it tells the story of the people going to Egypt um, and then they suffer in Egypt later and God rescues them and brings them out through the Red Sea. Uh, so there's, there's God's gracious saving actions, not necessarily on the exact timing that the people would like it, but he does his plan and it is gracious and it's holy. And then um, when they're on their way to the Promised Land, from Egypt, uh, the people sin at Mount Sinai, um, and in verse uh, seventeen uh, it says, "But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them." Um, and even then, when they have still sinned and tried to go back to Egypt and try to abandon God. Uh, in verse 19 it says, Because of your great compassion, that, uh, that's God's great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine the way that they were to take. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. So these are the people that God has determined will not enter the promised land because of their sin. But in the meantime, their clothes don't wear out, and they don't go thirsty or hungry. And God is holy, but he's also compassionate. And that's important for us to see, because... Um, not just in that story, but also in what God is doing through Nehemiah. He's restoring his people after punishing them for their sin. He's restoring his people because he's a God who fulfills his promises and he's a God of compassion. And that's what the book of Nehemiah is trying to show us and that's what Luke is trying to show us in Acts. There's just one other thing I'd like to point out. Um, Who was Nehemiah? Was he a great, a great prophet, a great preacher? Was he a king or a great army general? Well, he was. He was a cupbearer, a cupbearer for the king of Babylon, which is an important role because he's testing the wine to make sure it's not poisonous before the king drinks it. But he's he's got a relatively lowly job. In much the same way that Stephen in Acts chapter 6 had a relatively lowly job. So, what I'm trying to bring out there is that um, some of us are called to do important jobs, some of us are given humble, lowly jobs. All of those things, though, can be powerful witness, uh, can be a powerful witness and a powerful testimony. Uh, and we shouldn't underestimate how much 
and God through his spirit can work through us, giving us the right words to say to somebody. Uh, it's not just up to the King Davids and the Moses and Moses types, you know, uh, or Peter, the lead disciple. You know, it, it's the rest of us with our lowly roles are still used powerfully by God. And um, God intends us to reflect his nature, his compassion, and his holiness as we live as his people. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is, look what a compassionate God, and what a holy God, and what a loving God, and a merciful God we have, as you can see through these passages today. And that's important for us to understand in our own context today, that God has not forsaken us. That, yes, there is suffering, yes, there are things going wrong. Um, Even when the virus thing is over, there are other problems. But we have a faithful God, and he has revealed himself to us, and we are his people, and we can trust in him and see the holistic picture of how he wants us to live. Uh, and, and take comfort in him and seek him uh, as we go day by day. So that's the, uh, the message and that's uh, hopefully a, a good word of encouragement for each of you in, in whatever situation God has you at the moment. Uh, let me pray for you in the coming week. Uh, before we finish, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a good God, that you are uh, loving, uh, that you are holy, that you are compassionate, and that you um, fulfill your promises. We thank you for uh, gathering each of us um, into your fold to be your people. And we ask, Father, that you'll help us to trust in you day by day as we go through the coming week. And we ask, Father, that you will guide us and that you will help us to hear or see your direction for us in each of our situations. And, Father, we pray all of these things in your Son's name. Amen.